So Matthew chapter five, and um, as you're as you're turning there, as you as we uh, as we begin today, we're going to be looking uh, at verse eight today, and it's this: "Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God." And uh, one of the one of the challenges, but yet one of the incredibly um, stretching parts of of preaching and teaching just one verse a week is just that. That's it. It's just one verse. That's all you got, right? Not a whole lot of, of, of different avenues to go into. It's just kind of what it is. Blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, however, we've been talking about how this, these Beatitudes are not just in and of themselves these individual characteristics, but how we really see them as building blocks of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we started out by the, the poor in spirit, those that are spiritually bankrupt, uh, and realize that I bring nothing good to the table, but God has done everything for me. And so when I get to that moment, then that should hopefully lend me to a, to a broken place in my spirit. Uh, and then the only reaction to that is what comes next is to mourn over the sin in my life, to be broken and mourn over that. And then that should change the way that I relate with other people, that I become a, a meek person, this this idea of power under control. And no longer do I am I just moved by every emotion or thought that comes through my mind, but but I learn to control those things. And, and when I get to that point, then God moves in the direction of, of a hunger and thirst for righteousness, to be like Jesus, right? I have this desire in, in my heart to be like Jesus. And the more I become more like Jesus, we talked about last week, the more and more that makes me want to be merciful. As I look to people in other conditions who may be going through things that I'm not going through or uh, people that have offended me or, or all kinds of different arenas that now I can come and be merciful to those people, not because they necessarily deserve it, not because I am such a great person, but because of the mercy that I've seen that God has shown me, I can now extend that to other people. And that's kind of where we pick up today now, is the next step in this, in this kind of building of what it means to be a, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is to be pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I don't know about you, but when I think about pure in heart, right, the first thing that comes to my mind, really, is like, I get this idea of like a, like a medieval knight, right, like, like this valiant knight that kind of rides in, like Prince Charming kind of deal, right, and I just think like he's, he's just completely pure in heart, right? Um, what, what, I mean, what, what comes to your mind when you think of pure in heart? A princess, okay. So we got a prince, and so if you got a prince, if it's gonna be any good fairy tale, you gotta have a princess, all right? Who is just this, you know, gentle. never done anything, gentle, Snow yeah. yeah. Snow White, okay. Pure white. What else? Pure in heart. Any other any other thoughts come to mind when you think about pure in heart? Uh, I think of Captain America, which is really strange. Okay. <laughs> well, because, a little explanation, please. Well, there's well, there's this scene where uh, they they have to give him like the superhero sermon or, or sermon <laughs> serum. Yes, in the sermon. In the sermon, you gotta, right. you know. Um, but the, he tells the this puny guy who becomes Captain America like why they chose him, and it wasn't because of his oh, yeah. strength. It was because he was pure in heart. It was because he was like a good person at, at okay. his core. Okay. Yeah. 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 Sorry. <laughs> he maintains that. He maintains that, right? He does maintain. Right. So before he gets these powers, it's based on the. It's based on his his character, his pureness of heart. Um, and I would say, in a lot of ways, that, that like it's probably a phrase that we don't use a whole lot today. Like I don't. I don't know when the last time you told your friend, man, you're really pure in heart, or uh, we really thought about that. Um, and it's and it's a phrase, and and I think that. Um, 
at the core of it, we have to look at like, okay, so what, what, what was Jesus saying, right? Like, what did he really want us to, to understand? And I think, I think the, the best way to look at that is, is, is to understand this word pure first, right? What does this word pure mean? And, and in the Bible, um, this word pure can kind of have two different meanings. Um, one that probably comes to mind as we think about the Bible, we think about the Old Testament, is kind of the idea of, of like ritualistically or ritually pure, right? And so like we know in the Old Testament, like the priests before they could go and do their service, before they would be able to go and make sacrifice, right? They would have to be pure. And so there was these, these ceremonial um, symbols and things that they would do in order to become pure in order to be in the presence of God, right? And these were these were almost like a covering or a cleansing of their sin, right? So they could be in the presence of God. Um, how, however, I, that is that is definitely one of the ways that that clean is or pure is used is the idea of of clean, unsoiled, uh, kind of these ritualistic things that you can do. However, I think when when Jesus is using that to speak of his follower, he has much more the idea of the the concept of unmixed, pure and unmixed, right? Um, and, and it means to be to really to be single minded or single fo- focused. There's only one substance in there, right? And so the, the greatest analogy I can think of uh, to to kind of help illustrate this is skim milk, right? Uh, now I don't know how many of you guys are skim milk fans. I used to drink a lot of milk when I was a kid, right? And and one thing you realize is that if you grew up on like pure unadulterated whole milk, right, from a, from a cow, right, and you drink skim milk, you realize really quickly those are not the same things, right? Because what is what have they done to skim milk? They've skimmed it off, right? But I also have this theory that they poured a lot of water into it, right? I mean, you pick it up in, in the thing, you know, and it's got the little pink label on the thing, and it almost looks like iridescent, you know? Have you ever noticed that? You're like, you pick it up, and it's like, that's not the color milk should be. Something's wrong with that. Uh, now, now, probably need to let you know as a as a kid growing up, uh, my my grandmother she kind of knew everybody in the world, and so it made sense uh, that her neighbor was a dairy farmer, and so they would go and take jugs and fill it up straight from the dairy farm. So this was unprocessed, un you know homogenized, none of that. It was just straight out from the cow. It had been chilled, and then you pour it into your own container, and you take it home and you drink it. Like that is pure milk. And I remember when, when I had when I had skim milk for the first time, it was like there's something completely wrong. You know, it's 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 not one substance. It had has had other things added to it and things removed from it, right? Um, and, and the idea of of unmixed is that it's just it's it's one pure substance. And so when when Jesus then says that that his followers should be pure in heart. It's really the idea that we would have unmixed hearts, that our hearts are not chasing after multiple things, but, but there's one pure desire that's within our hearts. There's one area with which our hearts are going after. Um, also, the idea may come, in, come um, you know, the, the picture of, of how they make gold, if they purify gold, right? What do they do? They heat it up, right? So that all the sediment and all the other impurities will come to the top and they kind of scrape that off. So all that's left is just pure gold, right? That's what's valuable. And it's the same idea in our lives. The basic idea is that our hearts are not divided. That, that, that there's one ambition, there's one desire in our heart, and that's for God, right? Um, Paul, I think, hits on this idea in Philippians chapter 3. As he, as he looks at his life, and he looks kind of at his mission of what he's called to do. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13, he says this, 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own yet. He said, but one thing I do, right? This, this, this singular idea. There's one thing that I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. I get this idea that Paul's saying, you know what? There's a lot of things in my past. There's a lot of things that I'm going through. But my focus is on one thing. Right? I have an undivided attention. I have an undivided heart, and that's to follow after Christ. Um, I think the, the Danish philosopher, a guy named Soren Kierkegaard, um, I think he said it really well when he said this. He said, he said to will one thing. Right? That's how he says, he, that's how he defined pure in heart, is to really, I have one will in my life, and that is to serve God. I have one desire in my heart, and that is to serve God. And so Jesus says, he says that those that are pure in heart, in heart. See, as we look at the heart here and, and the, uh, the understanding of our heart, we have to realize that, that ultimately our heart is, 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 kind of, is kind of a bad thing sometimes, right? Like as we, as we think about our lives and we think about just kind of our natural inclinations, right? Our heart is, is, is just kind of divided very easily. We don't have to do much. It's easy. We let a lot of things into our heart, don't we? I mean, think about that. Uh, we, we let all kinds of, of good things, but also bad things into our heart. And we kind of get to this place in our lives where our heart is just so consumed by all of these outward things. And our hearts are evil. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah says that the heart is, is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it, right? And it's this idea that, that if, if we just kind of leave ourselves to our own, that our hearts are going to be divided, Right, we don't have to do anything to have divided. We can even have God in our life, but yet not make Him the only part of our life. Not to make Him our only thing in our in our heart, because our hearts are evil and they chase after our own desires. And so we ask the question: Is there is there hope? Right? What do we do? Are, are we do we? Is there even any hope with us having a divided heart and and our hearts being evil and? And of course, we know the answer is yes, right? Um, and and I love I love how Ezekiel says this. I love when you, when you go to the Old Testament um, and and look at, at what God says to the prophets. In Ezekiel thirty six verse twenty five, this is God saying that He said, "I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness and from the idols. I will cleanse you." In verse twenty six, and I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes to be careful to obey my rules right and this idea that that our heart is is evil and wicked and and, and we need to it needs to be purified right it needs to be singularly focused on God and I think that's a real problem in our culture today, right? Like I think I think even within our within our church and within our Christian communities like we have a desire to follow God, right? Like most of us probably here today are like, I have a desire to follow God. But yet there's also these other things that kind of get in, in our hearts and we seem to chase after them. Um, and I think the Bible, the Bible has, I think one of the clearest pictures of this is the story that, that, that Jesus tells of the rich young ruler that, that's written about the rich young ruler. Um, and this is in, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. And Jesus, as he talks about it, right, he, he said that, that one day uh, a ruler, a, a young man, right, comes to Jesus. 
And, and he comes to him and he says, teacher, what must I do? What good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? So, so we see right off the bat that this guy has some spiritual interest, right? He's like, as I look around, I, I acknowledge that spiritual life is our eternal life is out there. What do I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and, and he says, why do you call me? Why do you call me good? Right? Why is there? There's only one who is good. He says, uh, if you would keep, if you want to enter life, you must keep the commandments. And he says, which one? And Jesus says, well, you shouldn't murder and you shouldn't commit adultery and you shouldn't steal and bear false witness. You should honor your father and your mother and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man looks at, at, at Jesus and he says, well, I've kept all of these, right? What do I still lack? And Jesus says, if you would be perfect, you go and sell the possessions that you have and give to the poor, that you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me, right? And, and verse 22, I think, is one of the most uh, frightening verses uh, as, I, as I read through the scripture, right? Look, look at his response. He says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It's a picture of a divided heart, right? He wanted to follow Jesus. He was interested. He had done all of the, the, the kind of the, the rules and things that he should have done, but yet he had a divided heart. It wasn't solely, he wasn't able to give everything and follow Jesus, but he still wanted to keep this peace back. And I think that's where we find ourselves a lot of times. And so how do we, how do you know, right? How do we know if, if that's who I am? Am I someone who has a divided heart, right? Or is my heart completely Surrender to God. And I think if we ask the question, would I choose anything over Jesus, then we probably have a divided heart, right? Would I choose anything over Jesus? And if I would, then there's probably a divided heart. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't love Jesus. That doesn't mean that you're, you don't want to try to follow Jesus. But to be what Jesus says here, to be a pure in heart, to have an undivided heart, means that, that we choose Jesus over anything else. And typically in our lives, there's kind of three categories uh, that I think most of the time will kind of pull us in a direction away from Jesus. Uh, one of those is control, another is comfort, another is power, and another is riches. And I, and I tend to find that these four areas seem to be the big four for most people. These are the things that are going to pull our heart away from Jesus, that's going to cause us to have a divided heart. And they're going to be different for different people. Right, and so for for some of for some of us, it may be power, or riches, or, or comfort. For me, it's control. Like that's that's my that's the thing that wants to pull me away. Like I want to follow Jesus, but there's also aspects of my life that I want to make sure that I'm absolutely in control. I want to know that that certain things are going to happen the way I want them to happen, and to be able to just to say, you know what, I'm just going to completely trust that Jesus is going to take care of this in my life. Like that's a scary place for me, and I know in my life that's my tendency. Is to, is to kind of try to take some of that control back in my life and to say, you know what, Jesus, I, I give you everything except for this little area of my life, right? And the truth of the matter is that Jesus wants it all, right? He doesn't want, he doesn't want these little small areas for us to keep for ourselves, but he wants all of it. He wants all of it, right? And this isn't an easy thing to do. Um. A few questions maybe for us as we're, as we're thinking about our own hearts and is my heart divided? Is it completely sold out for God? A few questions to think about. Um, and, and I think this kind of hits, a, hits a, 
a variety on that scale of things that, that, that kind of pull our hearts. One is pleasing others sometimes more important than pleasing God, right? Do I, do I allow um, wanting to, to, to please others, make others, other people happy? Do I let that get in the way of what God's calling me to do? Is what I do consistent with what I really think? Are my actions, right, really consistent with what I think? Do I sometimes put popularity before principle? Am I more concerned about making an impression than doing what is right? What occupies my mind when I'm alone and have nobody to impress? Am I more concerned about my reputation than I am about my character? And I think some of these questions that we ask ourselves will, will really help us to define where our heart's at. Right? Where, where's our heart at? And I'll tell you, this is hard. This is a hard thing to have an undivided heart, like completely to be what Jesus has said. This is one of the hardest things that we can do, right? Because a lot of these things are really sneaky and they kind of sneak their way into our lives, right? Like most of us don't sit down and say, you know what? I want to follow Jesus 85% of my life, right? I don't, I want to follow Jesus just everything, but this little part, right? No, we always go into it and say, you know what? I want to follow Jesus 100%. But yet a lot of times our actions and the things we allow into our lives ends up dividing our hearts. Because it's hard. It's hard to follow Jesus 100%, right? And Jesus even, like, that's one of the things that, that I love about um, when Jesus would talk to people that were about to follow him. He was always candidly honest about what it would cost to follow him. He never said that it would be easy, right? He said that, that, that I'll share, my, share the burden, the burden in his life, but he never said that following him was going to be easy. Uh, I think about the passage in Luke chapter 9. Starting in verse, uh, verse 57, this is Jesus talking, he says, And as they were going along the road, and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? Verse 29, To another he said, He said, uh, Follow me. And he said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus gives this very clear definition that to follow him means to have an undivided heart. Right? And, and those are like some of those things are good things, right? Like, it's, it's not a bad thing for us to want to have a place to live, to have a roof over our heads. It's not a bad thing for us to care about our, our families or, or to, to, to want to have a relationship with people close to us. But when those things get in the place of Jesus, that's when we start to have a divided heart. And so how, how then, if we, if we are in this place, and I would suspect that probably a lot of us find ourselves in this place of having a divided heart from time to time, how do, we, how do we purify that? How do we get to this place where Jesus is completely everything? And I think the first way that we do that is by putting God's word in our hearts, right? The more that we can store up and put the word of God in our heart, the more and more we become like Jesus, the more and more that becomes the priority in our lives. Psalm chapter 119 says this, and we're going we're gonna to look at this here specifically in a little bit uh, more, but... But look at verse 9, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to the word. With my whole heart I will seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. 
Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you, right? Which is the idea that, that if we keep the word of God in our heart, it's going to keep us from storing up these other things. It's going to keep, it's going to fill our hearts in a way that Jesus starts to consume and fill every part of our life. And so we, we have to be devoted to the word. We need to have the word in our lives. We need to constantly be in the word. I think we need to constantly be learning and memorizing the word. I can't tell you how many times in my life where I've memorized a verse. I remember as a little kid, um, my mom would have us memorize Bible verses. And I can't tell you how many times throughout my life that that has come up and been something that, you know, I've been in a situation or something and I may not have had my Bible around or may not have been in in a a verse that I'd memorized somehow came back up in my life and God was able to use that in a really powerful way. And I think in the same way as as we keep the word of God in our hearts, it continues to, to guide us where we need to go. So we got to keep God's word in our heart. But secondly, we also have to look to Jesus as our example. Look to Jesus as our example. He becomes our example, right? If we, if we think, if we start to allow these other things to come in our heart, we need to look to Jesus. We need to keep our focus on Jesus because Jesus is our ultimate example. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which we cling so closely to, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, there's something about when I can look at what Jesus did for me and when I can look at the example that Jesus lived in this life, right? When I can look to Jesus, it helps me to to want to purify and to purify my heart, right? When I can look to Jesus' example, when I can can keep my focus on Him, it helps me to to get from getting distracted by all these other things that I like to bring into my heart and that, that so easily divide my heart. So what I want us to do is I want us to take a couple minutes um, and, and we're going to just get in and we'll, we'll just get into two groups. We kind of got a front group here that we can circle up in a back group. Um, and I want us to discuss this question. What is the biggest competitor in your life? Like what is the biggest, what is God's biggest competitor in your heart or in your life? Of these things of control, comfort, <coughs> power, and riches. Which one of those seems to always be the thing that grabs your attention and pulls you away from following God 100%, okay? So we're going to take a couple minutes and discuss that, um, and then we're going to follow that up by, by talking about what it means to seek God, okay? All right, if you guys want to wrap it up and come back together, we are going to continue. Your wife is in the middle of talking. Well, I thought you were wrapping it up. I was, I was trying to watch for it, but it's still learning that signal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, as you may have noticed, I'm not wrestling. Uh, I, <laughs> Thank yeah. you for that out. Yeah. No, uh, no uh, I'm Ross Zablowski, um, and I'm going to be taking the back half of this verse, the part where it talks about, for they shall see God. Um, you, you may notice as I'm talking today that a lot of the same points are going to come up. Uh, I was preparing, as I was preparing for this, I was kind of making this um, 
like conspiracy theory web where I was starting with like, all right, so pure in heart. All right, how do you get become pure in heart? All right, it's by you know following the word. And then how do you follow the word? Well, you do that by doing this, and then it helps you see God. And how do you see God by being pure in heart? And then I realized I was just in a circle. So <laughs> a lot of the same points are going to come out that Russin just shared um, as we think about these things. Um, so the first thing I want to focus on is this idea of seeing God and why that's such a radical statement that Jesus is making. Uh, so the whole verse is, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, as Rustin said, the pure in heart is radical because when people are hearing this, they're thinking about that idea of what it means to be pure uh, and that ritual idea. But Jesus is emphasizing a different part, which is that idea of being pure in heart, not just in action and in ceremony, but in your heart, that that's the part that Jesus wants. And then the back half of that is also controversial because it says they shall see God. Uh, and the people that see God are a very small percentage of the population. In fact, it is one person that would see God in that culture. Uh, and so it has to do with this whole system that has been put in place in the Old Testament and the idea of the high priest. So um, they have this idea of the temple uh, and who gets to see God is just the high priest once a year on the day of atonement. Uh, and there, even then there is a division for how between how much he gets to see God. They would light incense so as to mask the glory of God so they would not fully see who he is. Uh, everybody else has very limited access to who God is. So you have this outer portion out here, which is called Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Portico, uh, and that is where a large percentage of people stayed, uh, just to be close enough to hear what rabbis would be teaching about who God is. Within that, you then have this outer court, which is called the uh, Court of the Gentiles. And if you were non-Jewish, you couldn't go any further than that area. Uh, and then once you get inside the first gate, so that is all outside the temple, not even close. Once you're inside the first gate, this area here is called uh, the beautiful gate. The entrance is the Court of the Women. So that is where women were allowed. And then they can't go any further into the temple from that part. Once you're inside that, the Nicanor Gate begins what's called the Inner Court, which is where the sacrifices begin to happen. Uh, and then there's a barrier there called the Ducan, where you couldn't go any further in. And once you're inside that, you're in the holy place where the priest would be offering the sacrifices for the different sins. And you could watch and look in, but could not enter that area. And then finally, the Holy of Holies, the holiest place, this area here, is where the high priest could enter once a year, during the Day of Atonement, to offer sacrifices for the people where he would speak to God at that moment. And so for Jesus to say, anybody who is pure in heart can see God, is a radical statement to the people that are listening. And so the question we have been asking today is, how do we become pure in heart? And as Russin mentioned, the uh, scripture indicates two clear ways. One is to put God's word in your heart. Uh, and to become more like Jesus. And so we're going to look at these two things in more detail and how it relates to seeing who God is. So the first thing is to identify this word seeing. Uh, in the Greek, it means not just to look at something, but it means to recognize or experience. So what Jesus is really saying here is to experience God, not just see him, there are only a couple people who actually see God, and they don't see him in his fullness, but they experience God in a moment. 
So that's really what we're looking at. The big question we're asking is how do we have our focus solely on God, right, unmixed, so that we are able to experience him? And so we're going to look at one of those examples from somebody who experienced God in multiple times in his life. And that is person is David. In 1 Samuel 13, 14, uh, God is describing uh, who, he, who he's looking for for his next king. And he says, I sought out a man after my own heart. He's looking for someone that gets who he is. And so that this person is someone who sees God clearly and experiences him. So we're going to think about why is David described this way? How did he become somebody after God's own heart? So we're going to look at three examples. So the first one is the the story that we may be familiar with, the idea of David and Goliath. Uh, So if you're not familiar, the basic concept is that David is a young boy. Uh, He goes out to bring food to his brothers who are at war. And there is this uh, giant named Goliath who is taunting the people and challenging them to send out a fighter to come against him. And nobody is willing to do it. And David is just so confused about this. Why is nobody going up against this giant? And so he uh, gathers five stones and goes to face the giant Goliath. And this is his response to uh, Goliath in 1 Samuel. And he said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you with the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And he's ultimately able to be victorious against Goliath. But I think what we get from this, the idea of why he is a man after God's own heart, is that he knows the promises of God. He knows God's word and his scripture. This part here, he is almost citing passage back in Exodus, verse 14, 14, 14, which says, The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Right? You come against... Uh, I come against you in the name of the Lord. How dare you stand up to God's chosen people? The Lord has said he will fight for you. Why aren't you guys getting behind this and trying to fight this giant? God has given us this promise already. And so we see that idea of knowing God's word is powerful, and God is in that situation. The second example uh, is when the Ark of the Covenant is returned uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And uh, in this story, David has brought back this uh, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's power, uh, where God's presence resides. And he is celebrating. He is rejoicing. He is dancing. It says he is in uh, one of his uh, lesser or under tunics. So he's like more or less, uh, you know, not in his kingly garb dancing around. Uh, and his wife comes out and says, what are you doing? You're embarrassing yourself in front of your men. Like this is not how the king should behave. And he responds in 2 Samuel chapter 6, saying, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. Thinking about the song we sang today, The Heart of Worship. God wants all of our heart, nothing held back. And that is what David is doing here. He is completely worshipful and not holding back at all. Uh, And this makes me think of uh, the the verse that David himself writes in Psalm 100, uh, where he says, nope, it's not that one. We don't slide. That's fine. Uh, Here's what it says. Um, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. 
Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. See, David worships with his whole heart, with nothing held back, not concerned what other people think or how they see him. And how much can we say that when we are in a spirit of worship? Are we holding back? Are we still concerned with how people will see us? Or are we truly experiencing God and giving it our all? The third example I want to give of David being a man after God's own heart uh, is a little bit of a longer story. Uh, it's really the entire chapter of 1 Samuel 24. But Saul, the current king, uh, is trying to get rid of David because he knows that the spear has left him and is going to become uh, inside David, and he will be the new king. And so he's hunting down David. David and his men are hiding in a cave, uh, trying to avoid Saul. And God orchestrates this opportunity where Saul is encamped right outside that cave and doesn't even realize David is hiding there. Saul goes up into this cave uh, to use the bathroom, uh, and David and his men are hiding in there. And it seems to everybody like God has given him this opportunity. There's the man that's hunting you down. Go and kill him. Nobody will even know. And then you'll become the new king and all your problems will be solved. But again, David acts differently. He experiences God and follows God's heart more than what would have been a good situation. It seems like God has offered this thing uh, for him to become king and he takes a different path. He goes uh, up to Saul and he cuts off a corner of his robe instead of killing him and then Saul goes back down to his men. And then he addresses Saul with this corner of his cloak to show that he could have killed him. But there's more to this picture. It goes back again to that idea of knowing and loving the word of God. David is quoting in action uh, a passage from Numbers, Numbers 15, 37 to 41. There was a tradition uh, among the Hebrews that they were to wear a blue and white cord. This is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corner of their garments throughout their generation. To put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. To be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord. To do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So when David's holding up this tassel, it's almost like Mephasa and the Lion King. Remember who you are, <laughs> right? He's holding this corner of the cloak to Saul and saying, yes, I could have killed you, but you are God's anointed. When he's to look at you, you're to see who God is. Um, and so you have this moment where David gets it, right? He understands who God is. Yes, God is about justice and about having his will take hold in people's lives. But he's also a God of mercy and compassion. And he wants redemption more than he wants justice to take hold. It reminds me of a um, moment in a TV show that Holly and I like called Parks and Rec. Uh, and there are these two characters. Uh, Leslie Nope, who is like the hyperactive lover of all people, uh, goes over the top, wants to make everybody happy. Uh, and there's another character, Ron Swanson, who is more reserved uh, and is the typical outdoorsman, uh, doesn't want people uh, getting involved in his life, wants to stay uh, away from everything, 
uh, and is very introverted. And Leslie Nope finds out it's going to be Ron's birthday. Uh, and so she, he is so worried she is going to make this grand over-the-top party, invite everybody he's ever known in his life uh, to this thing. And so he starts to interview people that Leslie has thrown parties for. And they're telling him all about, oh, yeah, she, like, got a carnival, and there was, like, free waffle cones for everybody, and they, uh, you know, got these pony rides, and, like, all these things that are just going through his head of how terrible this is going to be. Um, and at the end of the day, Leslie goes up to Ron and says, it's time for your party, and he's just dreading it. And so she leads him to this room. They go in, and there's nobody in the room. Uh, it's just a table with a steak and a little thing of whiskey, uh, and a movie uh, about World War II that's on the, the screen. Um, and you just can't believe, like, what is this? And she's like, this, this is a Ron Swanson party. Like, nobody's coming to this. Nobody's going to be here. It's just you in a room by yourself. Like, that's what you would want. And I think it points to this idea of that God, we long to be understood. right? We want people to understand who we are, and God wants that too. God wants to be understood by his people. And I think it's because we, we long for that, that it helps us understand who God is. That the things we long for are the things that God longs for as well. And so when we look at that passage of Psalm 119, we see this longing in our hearts and in God's heart as well. Right? We want to know, how can we be pure? How can we see God? How can we experience Him? And it's through spending time and knowing who He is. Right? David gets it. He gets God's heart. He gets his heart of mercy and compassion and this possibility of redemption for somebody who doesn't deserve it. And so we'll read it again, as Russin shared this morning. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. We see that through David. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So I want to take a couple of minutes back in our discussion groups. How do we get to see God by knowing his word and knowing his heart? Howard, give some examples in your groups. How have you seen God and learned more about him through his word and understanding who he really is? Take a couple of minutes to discuss that with your groups. All right, we need to come back together. We're going to continue looking at how we experience God. So, the first way we experience God is by knowing his heart, by knowing his word. The second way we experience God is by becoming more like Jesus, by looking more and more like who we are made to be. Um, so, there's this idea uh, nowadays where you can put your picture in and get a celebrity that looks like you. Um, doesn't really work for me all that much, but uh, when I was teaching World History 2, uh, some of my students said, hey, Mr. D, you know who you look like? And then they showed me this picture. 
Is that why you didn't want me to cut your hair today? <laughs> Isn't that really unsettling? Like it, so this per I look just like this person. It's really creepy, and I plan on using this to convince my kids I'm a time traveler. Uh, but uh, this is Frederick Engels. He helped write the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> Uh, so just because I look like him doesn't mean I have the same intentions, actions, and behavior of that person. So when we're talking about looking like Jesus, we don't mean become a Middle Eastern man. We're talking about <laughs> becoming like his actions, intentions, and behaviors. Okay? Uh, so this idea of looking like Jesus is an older concept. It's right from the beginning. God tells us right in the beginning in Genesis that you are to be image bearers of God, right? So Genesis 1, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let, us, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, the image of God. He created them male and female. This word of image bearer is a Hebrew word, salem, uh, which is this idea that we are made to look a certain way. Uh, the actual word, the way they define it, is a shadow of the same function as the original. Right? It's not just the image, not just looking like, it is the intentions, actions, and behaviors of that thing. A shadow of the function of the original. Right? So in the ancient world, they would have these all the time. It's the same word they use for idols or other deities that they would have in other civilizations and other religions. Uh, it's an image made to look like the ancient God, not just in the way it looks, in the physical form, but in the function of that thing. Uh, so they believe that that deity or that idol contained the deity's essence and that it acted on behalf of the God, that it followed the same functions. So, for example... I have here from my world history class. Uh, this is an idol of Horus, the Egyptian god of the sky. So they believe that this god controlled the movement of the sun and the moon. So by praying to this idol, they didn't think that this piece of, whatever this is, stone, uh, would you know, rise up out of their house and cause the sun to move. They were praying to it because it was a function of what the god itself would actually do. It is a salem, an image bearer of what the function of the God actually is. And so to say that we are salem, we are image bearers, we are a shadow of the function of the original, is to say that when people look at us, they should see the function of what God is doing. Right? Not that we look exactly like God, that the function of what we're doing looks like the function of what God is doing. So, the work that God wants to accomplish is accomplished through us. So, when we think about this, this is one of the arguments that the theologian C.S. Lewis uses in his book, Mere Christianity, to make his argument for God to begin with. Right? Why is it that we long for things? Why do we want justice so much? Why do we value love and obsess over it in our music and our culture? Why is that something we care about so much? That's not a necessary biological thing for survival. That's not an evolutionary argument. It is something deep within us that we desire because we are a function of what God desires. Right? God wants justice. God wants love. God wants to be understood. 
So C.S. Lewis says it this way, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. Right? We are holding out for something different, something better, because we long for it, because God longs for it. Right? We are image bearers of what God has intended for this world. <clears throat> and Jesus continues and affirms this idea about us being image bearers of God in Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 to 22. Right? So there's a story here about the Pharisees testing Jesus with this question. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. You are not swayed by appearances. Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So there's a couple things at this beginning part that we have to understand to get what Jesus is about to do here. So the Caesar, the person that's in charge, right, the emperor of Rome, would always print new coins with his face on it. Every Caesar had a different one. So this particular uh, Caesar, his name is Tiberius, and he had a coin that had his face on it. So it looks like this. Um, it would probably be about this size uh, is what the coin actually, this is from later in the Roman Empire, but that's kind of the idea. So it's not very big. It's about the size of a penny. And they had to have this specific coin to pay a specific tax. The word they're using in the verse isn't tax, it's tribute. Pay tribute to Caesar, right? You had to go, you had to register in the census, you got this particular coin, and then when it came time to pay it, you would give that coin. It was a way of controlling the people, knowing, one, how many people were in the empire, and two, how many of them were actually paying taxes, right? So you didn't have this... Uh, immigrant problem. They knew exactly how many people and if they were paying their taxes or not. Uh, it was a combined system. And so uh, on this coin, there are two things. There's the face of the emperor on one side, right? And it's on the back, it says in Latin, high priest Tiberius, which is the emperor, son of the divine Augustus, right? The Romans have this idea their emperor is a picture of who God is on earth. And so his picture is on the coin, but also the phrase, the Div Tiberius son of the divine Augustus. Okay? Can you go back to that verse? Actually? Yeah. Uh, and so then Jesus says, show me the coin, which is hilarious because it means the Pharisees have one of these coins, right? They had to go to the Roman Empire, uh, sign up on the census, get this coin, and then why are they carrying it around at, to begin with, right? They're not supposed to have these coins if they really are not loyal to the Roman Empire to begin with, right? Um, so it's funny that they even have the coin. And then Jesus asks them something else, right? <clears throat> uh, so they bring in the coin, they show him. Uh, in verse 20, Jesus says to them, whose likeness is an inscription is on this coin? And they said Caesar's, right? Because it's Caesar's picture on the coin. And then Jesus says, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to the God, things that are God's. When they heard it, they were marveled, and they left him, and they went away. Right? Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Right? His, his picture on the coin. Uh, and here he's subtly quoting Daniel 4, where God talks about, you know, be respectful to the people in power, because I've given them everything to begin with. Right? The power that is in the coin is from God to begin with. But he adds something else. He doesn't just say, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, the picture that's on the coin, give to Caesar, because it's his face on it, his image. 
He says, give to gods what is God's. So what is he implying there? The coin has Caesar's picture, his image. What has God's image on it? Us, right? Give to God what is God's. God doesn't want your money, per se. He wants your heart. Give to Caesar what is his. He can have the money. God wants you. He wants your heart because you bear his image. So we are an image, but we are a shadow of the function. The true image of God is through Jesus, as Russell said at the beginning. Right? Jesus is the perfect image of who God is, not just in physical form, but in action, intention, and behavior. In John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. He is the perfect image that we are to look to. He shows compassion for all. He calls out hypocrisy. He seeks after the lost. And he's never sinned. He is singularly focused. He is unmixed. His heart is not divided. He is pure of heart. And he ends his time on earth by seeing God face to face, by experiencing God, by ascending into heaven. And so we too have a future promise of seeing God face to face when he returns. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known or fully understood. For now our, mirror, our image is a mirror dimly, but one day we will get to see Jesus face to face. Let me get back to our original point of how do we get there? How do we experience God? I was reading this past week. Uh, I'm going through the Bible in a year, and I'm in Jeremiah right now, and this spoke to me perfectly for this. In Jeremiah 31, <coughs> verse 33 to 34, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. That is the picture of what the future is to look like. We won't have to talk to God about people, because they'll already know him. His words will be written in their heart. Everyone will already know who God is, because they have read about him, and they have experienced him. And this is so critically important. You have to understand this beatitude before we can move on to the others. right? <clears throat> when you see God, when you experience him, the other things are easy. They may seem hard on the surface if we don't stop and dwell in this portion. When you see God, you will want to be a peacemaker. You will not care about persecution anymore. Because you've experienced who God truly is. We see God by having a pure heart. And by having a pure heart, we get to see God. So, we do these things by knowing God's word. And by recognizing who Jesus is in other people and in ourselves as well. And so we want to end today by spending time looking in his word and meditating it and writing it on our hearts. Um, and so we are going to be looking at Psalm 119. Uh, we have printed out cards with just this section on it. Uh, as I was reading over it this morning, I really I had the thought too that like, you know, you could spend, I think I counted 20 days just on this one psalm. Uh, because there's like a hundred and something verses in this one psalm. Like, it's super long. David does this thing where he writes an acrostic, so for each 
uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet. He like writes a poem about God, and so there's 20 letters, and so you could do 20 months of this thing. Um, but or 20, 20 uh, days of this thing, not 20, 20 days of it. Um, but we're going to give you just a portion of it that we've been reading. Uh, we've read twice so far this morning. Uh, we, we're going to put a timer up. Uh, I think I'm going to, I don't know how much time we put up there, but I'll stop it like halfway through. So for the first part, part of it, just read it and meditate it and pray about it. And then I'll give you a signal and then you can turn and talk about it for a little bit also. Well, as we, uh, as we kind of wrap up today, um, thinking about one, what does it look like to be pure in heart, right? To have an undivided heart. And I think, if, I think this is, uh, I think, I think one thing Ross said there at the end is just so key is that if we can get this piece of it, right? If we can get this piece of like not having all this other stuff in my heart, but having my heart only devoted to God. And then also to realize that when I can see God, when I realize that this, this is bigger in this moment. Um, than just maybe what I'm experiencing, but when I can when I can truly experience God, it helps those harder aspects of the Christian life. Um, when I can get my focus off of my discomfort or get outside of something that I'm not you know not wanting to do, and I can see this as man, but I get to experience God. This is this is leading to a place of helping me experience God. Um, it really does help us as we get into the harder aspects of, of this calling that Jesus is going to call. Because the thing he's going to talk about next week, which, which may be the hardest aspect of all, is to be a peacemaker. You know, when, when you have been offended, when you walk into a broken situation, how are you then the one to bring peace? That only happens if we can see the much bigger picture of what God is having us to do here. Right? That only happens when, when we can look at that situation and say, you know what, this isn't about me, but this is about God and what he is going to accomplish through this. And he goes into that situation with me. And so I really hope that this is something that, that kind of plays out in your heart. Um, you know, I would, I would encourage all of us this week, um, even as that we take time. And, and, you know, it takes, you know, there's what, seven verses here. It takes 30 seconds for us to read over that. But, like, what would it look like if we just started our morning off by just reading over this, this reminder of, of what it means to be pure in heart and, and seeking after God? Um, you know, we were talking back in our group about how, um, how in verse 11 it says that if I store up your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. And just to think about, like, how different our lives may look if we actually stored God's word in there. How different, how different we would approach when sin comes knocking on the door of our lives. You know, uh, I, I'm reminded of there, there's that moment in Genesis three uh, or four where, where Cain and Abel and it talks about the sin that Cain is about to to commit. And it said that sin is crouching at the door. And that's what sin does. It crouches at the door, it just waits for that moment. Right. But what if our hearts were like so filled with the word of God that there was no place for sin to even crouch in our lives? Right. Like what it would look like for us to do that. And so I would just challenge us this week as we as we start our week off to, to just start every morning um, getting in the rhythm and the routine of, of, of getting into the Word of God. Um, and, and maybe it's these seven verses. Maybe that's, the, hopefully that's just the start of your time with God. But I would just encourage us all to start there this week um, and see how God can work in that way. So as we close out today, uh, Tom's going to come up and we're just going to sing. Um, and, and, and really this morning, this is just kind of a it's just kind of an anthem for us all to just join in together of I Surrender All. Um, and, and really, this is just the time for us just to sing back this commitment to God um, of what it looks like for my heart to be sold out to Him um, and for me to be uh, sold out for Him. And so let's, let's join in singing this song together, um, and then we will we'll kind of head out for the day. So, Tom?